0: House announced that this week would be Infrastructure Week. This announcement came the same week that former FBI Director James Comey was set to testify in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, we have a full episode dedicated to that, so you can just go back in your feed and check that out. But this week was to be a week dedicated to taking concrete steps forward on improving our nation's roads, bridges, airports, And more. But how far has the Trump administration actually gotten? Have they made progress in coming through on the campaign promises that Trump made, namely a promise of a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure over 10 years?
1: My new vision for American infrastructure will rebuild our country by generating $1 trillion in infrastructure investment. Our infrastructure Plus, program.
0: why has the betterment of American infrastructure been a point of political contention in this country? And given that, can Trump, can, can any president, make significant progress? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Today, we have The Post's senior economics correspondent, Damian Paletta, here. Damian is going to help us answer this critical question, which is, can Trump achieve his promises on infrastructure? Damian, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So let's start here. I think of infrastructure as roads and bridges and airports, but there's that kind of infrastructure. And then there's also technological infrastructure. There's even biological infrastructure. How should we, for the purposes of this conversation, define infrastructure?
1: Infrastructure, I think the way Trump looks at it, is an investment in America domestically. So it could be low-income housing. It could be uh, wireless broadband access in rural America definitely airports is a big issue for him, roads and bridges, but even, you know, waterways and ports. You know, let's make America's ports the best in the in the world so that big ships can come into small areas, perhaps, and bring uh, import and export cargo. So I think they look at it very broadly. And that's one of the reasons it's taking so long, quite frankly, is because they, there's so many options on the table.
0: Along those lines, this week is supposed to be infrastructure week. The The White House has said so. Why did the White House decide to distinguish this particular week and why devote it to infrastructure?
1: It's a a great question. I I think the president's domestic agenda had three real pillars in it, tax reform, health care reform, and infrastructure. And we've heard very little about what they want to do with infrastructure. The president during the campaign talked about spending a trillion dollars to create millions and millions of jobs, but we haven't really seen what that would look like. And I think with all these scandals that they've been kind of overwhelmed with, there was a push among some advisors to focus on policy, you know, the way to shake this off. They tried to make this big focus in Cincinnati on, along the banks of the Ohio River. But in the hour that we were there, he talked about Saudi Arabia. He talked about his election victory in Ohio. He talked about health care reform. He talked about how obstructionist the Democrats were. He, he, he veered all over the place and didn't really focus on the infrastructure plan and package that he wants to put together and I think that sort of, you know, illustrates all the challenges that they've had so far.
0: Okay, so what's actually in that infrastructure plan? What what are the details of Trump's infrastructure plan?
1: Okay. So, that's a great question and there's not a lot of answers. We do know they want to they want to focus on several different things. One is to get rid of regulations that they say make it harder for people to build and develop. So, for example, if there's some sort of, you know, small endangered bunny rabbit in some field, and they want to build a highway in that field. Maybe the bunny rabbit's not as endangered as people think it is. Let's like make it easier to figure that out, right? They also want to make it easier for states and cities to move ahead with projects, although they haven't really gotten into specifics about how that would work. And obviously, the big one that everyone's focused on is you know that trillion dollars. Where does that money come from? Is it going to be federal spending? or is it going to be tax credits? What they've said so far is they want to have $200 billion in federal spending matched by $800 billion in outside money. And that could be real, or that could be kind of pie in the sky. I mean, the trick is, do they actually allocate money, or do they give big tax credits to developers to to sort of do this on their own? And and there's a big difference in that. Democrats are pretty supportive of plowing a lot of federal money into infrastructure projects, but they're a lot more skeptical if this is just tax credits for developers who are going to do the things anyway.
0: Yeah, which well, that brings up an interesting question, which is that usually Democrats care deeply about infrastructure. This year, both candidates ran on this. but. Why is Trump in particular so big on this? You know, a Republican Congress fought Obama as he tried to expand infrastructure spending. You know, it's typically higher taxes, increased government spending, things Republicans don't traditionally support. Will it be different with Trump?
1: I think it will be. You know, you have to look at Trump differently, obviously, than all past Republicans. He's a builder. He's made his career in building things. And I think he likes to look at finished projects. He likes things that are tangible that he can sort of look at and and admire. And so this is sort of the great project of his life, if he can get anything going. And, you know, obviously the challenge, though, is if they're going to just do $200 billion over 10 years, and the, when the budget that just came out showed us that it would be just $5 billion in the first year, that's less money than they were already going to spend on infrastructure. So, you know, are they just going to put some flashy signs up and make this into some big thing when really it's less than we would have already had? Or are they going to allocate more money on top of money that would already go into that and create some, you know, huge new American dream.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about how? I know you're a financial reporter, so you understand this better than most. Exactly how that money would get allocated? You know where it comes from, where it would go. Do private companies get it? Can you explain that? Sure,
1: that's a great question, and we don't know all the answers yet. But you know, one of the things that the the, the Trump uh, team wants to do is to uh, let's say they come up with twenty billion dollars in spending. Okay, they they the, the Congress votes to uh, appropriate twenty billion dollars for infrastructure projects. They have a team at the White House already that's looking at projects. That are sort of in the most extreme need, and they call them shovel ready that's you know kind of a loaded term, but ones that they think could be done quickly and have a big impact on jobs so like let's use for example the port in Savannah that's already begun. Savannah wants to sort of dig out the water around their port to make it more deep so that bigger ships can come in to bring in things in and out right, and that creates a lot of jobs you know there's a lot more business in the area, and so The question is, can they, if they appropriate $20 billion, does Savannah get a billion dollars of that directly? Does that money go to tax credits for the people that would be doing that work? You know, that's the kind of questions that haven't been answered yet.
0: So one other thing that Trump has been a little bit more specific on is, is this plan that he announced on Monday to privatize air traffic control. What would that accomplish in terms of technological development, labor? Is it a good
1: move? I think that the thing that they have identified with this is, A, it's something that Republicans on the Hill have been talking about for a while. So it's not something, you know, out of the blue. They've been looking at it. You know, the way air traffic control works now in the United States, there's these towers, right? And the planes are kind of tracked in this old-fashioned system. Whereas, you know, the White House keeps pointing to Canada having this GPS-based system that's a lot more efficient And, um, you know, I guess they believe you can use the manpower in other ways and and not do things that you could have done in the 60s and 70s. So I think to to some extent, you know, it does sort of make sense the way that they've proposed it. But the question is, if you asked someone what are the 100 most important things to be doing in infrastructure, air traffic control would not be one. And so if that's the one thing that they get momentum on, uh, it seems like it might be kind of a false start on their end.
0: Yeah, I'm a terrified flyer. It's like if I could change one thing about myself, I hate it. It's terrible. So to me, I hear, you know, privatizing air traffic control. Oh, my God, does this make me safer or does this make me less safe? What's your take?
1: The big, obviously, travel. I mean, n- very few of us understand how planes work, right. right? And so it's kind of a miracle every time you land, take off and land safely. And the fact they do it so many times every day. Safety has got to be the most important part of, of air travel, and we have a pretty safe system right now. Is it efficient? You know, is it, is it a pain to fly around the holidays? Of course it is. But I guess the question is, can the Trump White House convince Americans that they can make it better? And if they can, then, you know, they probably could have a green light. But if they can't or if it's kind of marginal – Or if, heaven forbid, you know, hackers find a way to crack into the GPS system, then you could have a total disaster on your hands.
0: So safety, of course, is a major concern when it comes to all different forms of infrastructure. And someone who unfortunately has firsthand experience in the critical nature of this is R.T. Ryback. R.T. is now the CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation and author of the book Pothole Confidential. But he was also the Democratic mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2007 when something terrible happened.
2: On an otherwise normal rush hour, as people were going home from their evening commute, that busy bridge you go over, the busiest one in our town, collapsed. I found out that the bridge had collapsed by just getting a phone call that said the bridge had collapsed. If you hear something like that, you think a piece of the bridge, you think a smaller bridge. It was really difficult to imagine what it really meant that the most crowded bridge in our interstate system was actually in the middle of the Mississippi River. Uh, it became more intense over time when I began to understand the human toll and seeing a mom with her kid who died, uh, a dad who was going to his baseball game, uh, and a mom who was coming home from work and the family had the dinner on the table, a school bus filled with kids, um, was just about to go over, but thankfully the truck in front of them swerved and protected them. When you see the biggest piece of infrastructure in your community fall, it's not about things. It's about people. And unfortunately, an awful lot of people suffered. Twelve people died. uh, Almost 100 were injured. And it was a calamity that came from a lot of factors but is also, I think, makes Minneapolis a bit of the ghost of Christmas future. We know what happens when infrastructure collapse, and it's not an abstract issue here.
0: Tell me about how the city of Minneapolis reacted at the time and what you've seen happen there since.
2: You know, it was so powerful to see the absolute worst thing happen in your community, bringing out the very best. And at a moment when people's lives were in jeopardy, people, some ran from the bridge, but a lot of people ran toward it and they jumped in the river and people literally reached in and pulled people back to save their life. And over the next year, as we rebuilt a bridge, which should have been rebuilt in three years, got it done in a year, people were so heroic in that. And what was really wonderful is everybody fanned out to try to say, let's make sure this doesn't happen again.
0: What, if anything, could have prevented this bridge from collapsing? And, And are we taking steps to be preventative in other cities across the country at the moment?
2: What could have happened in our bridge and many others is that We could do what we do with our homes, which is to have periodic reviews of what's happening, or probably best example is our cars. You know, when that light goes on, we take it seriously. That red light says something that we need oil or something's wrong with our radiator or something. We take it in to get fixed. That's just when you see that red light go on, you just go. You don't think about it because you know something bad's going to happen. Well, the red light (laughs) for our infrastructure has been going on, and I think if we reacted to that more more quickly and thought about it in that same context, it, it would it would change the way we look at this.
0: do you feel like the past few years since then we've come further in terms of progress on infrastructure?
2: No. I unfortunately feel that the lesson that everyone said they learned when they were coming to comfort the families that had died in Minneapolis never really got learned. To me, um, what really happened that day is, is I began to understand that it's not just infrastructure, it's common ground. I think government is is simple in that it's the things that we choose to do together that we uh, can do better than if we did them ourselves. I could go cut a path through the landscape of Minnesota so I can drive my car in front of my house. (laughs) But it's more efficient, (laughs) instead of all of us doing that individually, to do it together. That's a road. I can protect my house by locking the doors, but we choose to have police that we hire for the common good. And when you really think about that common ground, that common good, it's not that complicated a concept. Neither is the idea of upkeep. We know that from our house. Fix the leak in the roof or the roof falls in. We don't seem to apply that to... The common infrastructure we have. And the fact that somehow we could put this in a political sense is kind of crazy.
0: Now, can you explain to me kind of why that happens, why a politician might look at uh, a piece of legislation that gives more money to infrastructure and say, no, thank you, I don't need a safe road or a safe bridge?
2: Yeah, I'll give you a clear example. Governor Tim Pawlenty and I were strong partners. He's a Republican, I'm a Democrat and when the bridge collapsed, we worked together. He committed to call the legislature into session and reinvest in infrastructure. He was running for president. Grover Nordquist, the uh, anti-tax guy, wrote a letter publicly warning Tim Pawlenty that if he did something like that, it would be considered a tax increase. Governor Pawlenty flipped on his pledge to the citizens, and to me personally, and to the people whose families were lost, that he was going to repair the infrastructure and instead chose the political path. That really made me sick.
0: Yeah. So it's it's striking because these seem to be obvious things that we all care about. We care about maintaining them. We care about our safety. We all need to drive places. We need to have parks to visit. Why is it then such a seemingly politically insurmountable task for us to pass infrastructure spending in this country that repairs some of these things, that takes steps towards making sure these things are maintained?
2: You know, that's such a good question. Why has it taken so long? And I think part of it comes down to when did infrastructure get built? So infrastructure is often built when somebody has a big vision. That's about something new. Infrastructure gets built historically when there were jobs programs. The infrastructure gets built when we have a way that we want to change the landscape, the interstate freeway system or even going way back when we finally wanted to have clear, clean drinking water coming into your home. Those were big moments, and we're not in a moment of big things right now. We're not in a moment of political visions looking forward. The best, most exciting period for infrastructure was during the Recovery Act, where there were a number of pieces of infrastructure that were repaired and upgraded by the tens of millions hundreds of millions of dollars around the country as part of getting the economy going again in, in 2008, and it worked. But it took a crisis to address the crisis of infrastructure, and we should have learned a lesson there that it worked.
0: Surely efforts toward improving infrastructure in this country in recent years has been complicated and at times frustrating and often gets delayed. Why do we find ourselves in this position? Have there been successful infrastructure efforts in American history? And, and if so, how can we replicate them today? Henry Petrosky, a Duke professor of civil engineering and history and the author of The Road Taken, talks to us about the history of American infrastructure and its greatest challenges. Here's Henry.
3: The railroad effort uh, in the United States, as it was in, in England, where it really started, was a private enterprise. A, a lot of little railroads were started by people who sought investors to raise the capital. But as you can imagine, with a lot of little railroads that that are not necessarily united in any standardized way, there can be problems, and among the problems with the early railroads were that there was not a standard track gauge. So one investment group might start a narrow-gauge railroad, and then right next to it or continuing on from it might be one of a different gauge. And that created a lot of problems at first, but generally speaking, when you're talking about a new technology, as we were with the railroads in the 19th century, by its very nature... There are going to be some growing pains, and uh, probably for the government to try to regulate it beforehand would be a futile effort. We've gotten to the point where we think that infrastructure equals government. That wasn't the case early on, and it's it, it's a funny thing. There There are bridges in this country and roads in this country that are privately owned to this day, and there's a tendency to go back to that.
0: Yeah, so a little later on, under FDR... We saw a little bit more government involvement in some of our infrastructure, and that would be the Works Progress Administration.
2: Our responsibility for the immediate necessities
1: of the unemployed
2: has been met by the Congress through the most comprehensive work plan
0: in the history of the nation. I think it'll interest you if I tell you... Can you tell me a little bit about that, how that was a new idea, you know, what, what motivated it, what came out of it?
3: Well, that was the Depression, of course, and there were differing opinions about, you know, how we should handle the Depression, the Works Progress Administration and things like that were to provide job-creating projects, big, big projects that were win-win situations in that they did put a lot of people to work. The finished product was was something grand, uh, like the Hoover Dam or, you know, other projects under those programs. We admire them today as, as models of engineering and uh, and planning.
0: So in the Works Progress Administration case, it was really about creating a lot of jobs. Can you talk a little bit about how infrastructure and labor have always been connected or how it ebbs and flows?
3: Well, because infrastructure is so much about building and uh, large building projects, roads, bridges, and so forth, and that ne- necessarily there's a lot of labor involved, and the companies that employ the people for road building generally are not government, but are private contractors. The federal government is not authorized in the Constitution to build or maintain roads. Now, of course, they can pay <laughs> for them, because that's, that's a different category of involvement. But the, the federal government doesn't own the interstates, for example. Each of the states does.
0: So you said the Constitution doesn't mandate that the government oversee roads. Can you speak a little bit about then what the rules are in our country when it comes to the maintenance of roads? Who is in charge of that? Are there laws that require certain bodies to oversee our roads?
3: There are, yes. Early on in the 20th century, as it was becoming clear with the growth of the automobile, the roads had to be organized in some way. And since the federal government was not authorized under the Constitution, there's there's no mandate at all in the Constitution for the federal government to do anything about roads except what were called post roads, having to do with delivering the mail. But that's an archaic concept these these days. The individual states own the roads within their jurisdiction that typically are not owned by the small towns, or the municipalities. If we go to a city like Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. probably uh, has its own Department of Highways or whatever it might be called, and they would be the owner of those roads, and they would be responsible for uh, maintaining them. They might appeal to the federal government for a grant, but the federal government is not going to come in and impose, we're going to build a road here, or we're going to build a bridge here. The federal government simply is not in that business.
0: So then if roads and bridges do have this oversight, you know, not necessarily from the federal government, but often from local governments, and infrastructure spending is often seen as a way to increase jobs, why is it that we haven't seen these structures maintained? Why is it that our infrastructure is largely kind of agreed to be crumbling in different ways?
3: Well, I- it's down to where is the money coming from that the federal government has been doling out. We have a gas tax. That gas tax is, is at present, it's 18.4 cents per gallon. Every time you go and buy a gallon of gas, 18.4 cents of whatever you're paying is going into a what's called a highway trust fund. That's a federal fund. That's where the federal government gets its money. At the same time, over the past few decades, the federal government has been encouraging energy conservation, and the consequence of a lot of that is that people in the aggregate have not been buying as much gasoline. So revenue into this highway trust fund has not been keeping up with the demands on that fund. So when states and municipalities come and ask the federal government, the government says, well, we don't have that money to give you. Now, there have been infusions of federal dollars into that fund on occasion, but that seems to have stopped. There seems to be absolutely no stomach in Washington, D.C., for raising the gasoline tax. It's been at 18.4 cents a gallon since 1993, I believe. So that means not only is it not being uh, kept keeping up with inflation, but in, in combination with our, our using less gas, That fund is just not sufficient uh, anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a nice segue to my next question, which is that it's become increasingly political, it seems, to propose infrastructure efforts. Um, We did see both presidential candidates actually propose them in this past election, but that's not always the case. Why is this so politicized?
3: Well, I guess it's at heart a political issue. Even in the earliest days of our country, our nation, you had a choice in some cases you could either pay taxes or work on the road yourself, put in your own blood and sweat. Now that meant, of course, uh, because people are not were not experienced in what they were doing that the roads weren't getting a very good quality uh, product. Now we have professional road builders, road maintainers, road overseers, and so forth and so on. But it costs a lot of money, and in in many government entities, the road budget, which includes not just building roads, but maintaining them. This is the the majority of the budget. It goes beyond the majority of the
0: budget. How do we move forward? What would the federal government have to do? What would a presidential administration have to do to really bring about significant infrastructure change in this country?
3: Well, I read the six-page statement of the Trump administration, and actually that sounds like a good start to me. And what I read sometimes between the lines is basically the federal government gets out of it to a large extent. I wouldn't um, advocate the federal government getting completely out, especially with regard to regulation, so that we have uniformity across the states. And if the states are then responsible directly for all the money that they would have to spend on state roads, which would include interstates and U.S. highways and everything under their jurisdiction, uh, they might spend the money more wisely. They might watch contractors more carefully so that there is more accountability. That would be a good thing, that would be a good development.
0: So, Damien, one of our guests suggested that Trump's infrastructure plan is, in fact, a good one. What what are the merits of it?
1: I think the merits are that he's thinking big. It is amazing that the U.S. was able to build a whole highway system, you know, uh, 60 years ago. And the way it still is used every day and the way it's kind of reshaped America, right? A lot of towns have grown because they were picked to be along the highways. And... It is kind of, you know, the way interstate shipping and and trucking and things work, I think, is a real component of American culture and society. And he wants to think big. Now, obviously, he can't rebuild the American highway system or can't decide to put new highways through America. The country is just different than it was then. But he wants to he has this kind of big, ambitious idea that even if people say it can't happen, he thinks it can. And that's kind of the American dream. And so uh, if, he, if he can come up with ideas, whether it's broadband, whether it's you know, some new sort of high-speed rail, whatever, I think that he won't be deterred if someone tells him th- that it can't be done.
0: What can he accomplish? What's like the low-hanging fruit?
1: The low-hanging fruit, unfortunately for him, would be projects that are kind of in dire need of being addressed there are a lot of bridges in this country that are in really bad shape. And it is really dangerous. And sadly, they tend to be, quite frankly, in either really urban areas or poor rural areas. There's a tremendous number of old rail box cars that are used as bridges, you know, like in Arkansas and places like that. Now, is he going to go down in history as like the greatest president of all time for fixing some $60,000 old railroad car? Probably not. Is it going to help an important number of people's daily lives? Sure. And so I think he has to decide, you know, is that where I start? Or do I try to build, you know, the next great Golden Gate Bridge? Do I try to redo the Memorial Bridge here in DC, which is, you know, everyone says is about the fall into the Potomac. And so those are the sorts of tricky questions he has to address.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because when you think about something like the the Golden Gate Bridge, that's not really where people voted for Trump, right? Not in San Francisco. So maybe tapping into these smaller projects in more rural areas would actually be better for his constituents, for the people who voted him into office. Do you think he thinks about that? Do you think that, you know, even though he might have this grand project, he would actually be able to affect the lives of the people who voted him into office? That's a,
1: that's a great question. And I'm just thinking of if they just did projects in red states, you know, how that would be seen but you know quite frankly a lot of red states need the infrastructure help because the reason that he got voted in is because their economies are struggling and one of the reasons their economies are struggling is because of their infrastructure so it actually doesn't sound crazy but he is such a big picture guy he's n- he's not known for getting down into the details right he's not known for picking small things you know, that have small plaques on them. He wants something big. He uh, wants Trump Tower. That's right. He (laughs) wants Trump Bridge. And so I think that's where his focus might start. But the question is, as they get closer to, you know, feeling pressure about creating all these millions of jobs that he's promised, maybe they'll, you know, aim a little lower and try to get some things started.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that brings me to my last question, which is, Given all of these factors, you know, possible hesitation from Congress, not really knowing where the money is coming from, Trump just facing a ton of other distractions, what is the likelihood that he can make strides on infrastructure? Essentially, can he do this?
1: I think he can. I think what he has to do, though, is try to focus on something that he hasn't done so far since he's been president, and that is focus on a deal he can cut, focus on cutting a deal with Democrats That isn't a trillion dollars, okay? But let's say it's $200 billion over two years as opposed to over 10 years, and they can combine it with some sort of tax cuts to get some Republicans on board. But if they get a $200 billion project, you know, that's a fifth of what he wanted, but it's you can create a lot of jobs that way. If they do it in a smart way, you know, if they do it um, quite frankly in kind of a corporate way, non bureaucratic way, the way that he's kind of been used to in his career, I think they can get something done, but they have to sort of change their focus. And I don't know how quickly they can do that.
0: Yeah, Damian, thank you so much for coming on. So interesting. My pleasure. You can follow Damian on Twitter at
1: Damian Paletta.
0: Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. As usual, thank you guys so much for listening. You know the drill. Share this wherever you share things. Facebook, Twitter, tell your mom, send an email, do whatever it takes. Leave us a review. We are so grateful to you guys. Keep on listening. Thank you so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the bright-eyed Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential, where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com podcasts. The Washington
1: Washington Washington, Washington
2: Post. Post.